Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish. And I'm Maddie. And we're really happy to be back with another episode for you this week. This is our Thanksgiving episode, so we'll try not to make it too sad. But before we get started, we wanted to give a shout out to some of our listeners from our home state of Pennsylvania. Again, we don't know who you are, but we know where you are, which still sounds creepy. <laughs> it's almost worse. Like when, I think people might prefer that we know who they are rather than where they are. <laughs> so we'd like to give a shout out to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Camp Hill, Lebanon, Hummelstown, Hershey, Dallas Town. Carlisle, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, Pittsburgh, Cranberry Township, Pennsburg, Dillsburg, Langhorn, New Cumberland, Wilkinsburg, New Tripoli, Pine Grove, Erie, Lansdale, Norristown, Mechanicsburg, Coropolis, Ephrata, Lancaster, New Wales, Scranton, and Bushkill. So thank you so much, Pennsylvania listeners. We really appreciate the support. And if you haven't already checked out our website, please do so. Go to criminaldiscoursepodcast.com and you can see all of our episodes there and our show notes and links to our resources. And of course, you can listen to us on iTunes, Google, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Intune, and still waiting on Pandora. <laughs> Still waiting. Okay, so we're going to get started right away. This is a little different one, Maddie. Have you ever heard of the Duperalt family massacre? I've not, but I read it and this is why I don't go on boats. Just saying. We are at sea this week, so this is our first one on the water. So our story takes place November 13th, 1961. The oil tanker, the Gulf Lion, was sailing in the Northwest Providence Channel in the Bahamas. Have you ever been to the Bahamas? No, but my husband, I don't want to jinx it, but he's kind of close to winning a trip to the Bahamas through work. So I'd be excited about that. But no, I've not been at this point. I'm trying to remember. Was I at the Bahamas? I don't think I would remember that. I've been to Aruba and I've been to Jamaica. I don't think I've been to the Bahamas. So this story does take place in the Bahamas, like I said. So this oil tanker, the Gulf Lion, came upon a man and a small child floating in a dinghy. And the man said his name was Julian Harvey. He was captain of the sailing catch, the Bluebell. And the little girl, who unfortunately was deceased, was Terry Joe Duberall. Captain Harvey and the child were brought aboard the Gulf Lion that immediately set course for the nearest Coast Guard station. And one once there, Captain Harvey told investigators his harrowing tale. So this is his version of what happened. So Julian Harvey was hired by Arthur Duperalt to captain the Bluebell out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida for a week-long excursion in the Bahamas. He was also planning to take along his wife, Mary Denae, who was going to work as the ship's hostess and cook. The Duperalts were from Green Bay, Wisconsin, and included Arthur Duperalt, he was an ophthalmologist, his wife, Jean, son, Brian, age 14, Terry Joe, age 11, and Renee, age 7. Now, according to Harvey, as they were headed back to Florida on Sunday, November 12th, they were hit with a violent sea squall that night, causing the ship's mast to plunge straight through the hull of the boat, which caused the engine and gas lines to rupture, setting the boat on fire. All members of the Duperalt family, along with Mary Denae, were caught aboard the burning vessel, or they had jumped into the ocean and drowned since he really didn't see any survivors. Harvey claimed that he tried to put out the fire with the two fire extinguishers on board, but was unable to, and the fire soon spread out of control. So he says he jumped into the sea, hoping the others did as 
well. And the only person he saw, unfortunately, was Terry Joe, who when he dragged her on board the dinghy, had apparently already died from drowning. So to tell you a little bit about the Duperalts, Arthur Duperalt, like I said, was an ophthalmologist and he loved sailing. And that was probably from his time in the Navy. And he wanted to take his family on an around the world sailing adventure. And this was going to be like months long. So he wanted to start out a little bit and test the waters, so to speak. So he planned a trip to the Bahamas for like a week as a trial run for the family. So upon arriving in Fort Lauderdale, he chartered the sailing catch, the Bluebell. Now I know nothing about sailing, so I needed to, because a boat is a boat is a boat to me. So (laughs) I was like, what is a catch? It is a two-masted sailboat where one mast is usually 40 feet or higher, and that's the bigger mast and then there's a smaller one. So Arthur also hired Julian Harvey to be captain of the Bluebell and of course his wife to act as the cook hostess. And Captain Harvey was also going to be a tour guide for the family in the Bahamas since he was familiar with the area. And so they all set out on this sailing adventure on November 8th, 1961. So I'm going to guess this had to be a pretty big boat seeing as it was carrying what, seven people on it for this week-long trip? Yeah, I've seen pictures of catches. I guess they can be fairly big. It's not a cruise. And it was wasn't a super yacht. It was a sailboat. Okay. So the family would end up spending the week sailing around the Bahamas and having a fabulous time. They stopped at various islands. They went snorkeling and spearfishing. So to tell you a little bit about Julian Harvey. Now, Julian Harvey was 44 when he was hired as captain of the Bluebell. He was born in Scarsdale, New York, and attended Purdue University. Now, Mary Denae was his sixth wife, and they had recently got married in July 1961. So they were only married about four months before they started out on the Bluebell. Now, Harvey was a decorated World War II and Korean War Air Force pilot. He flew 29 missions in World War II and 114 fighter missions during the Korean War. And he would be awarded the Air Medal for Distinguished Service and the First Oak Leaf Cluster. And he rose to a rank of Lieutenant Colonel during his time in the military. Now, besides the prestigious background he had in the military, he also had a reputation with women. I would say six wives. <laughs> that's a lot of wives. <laughs> At 44. What's that average? I don't know. Oh, that's a lot. When you think you would have to be, what, 18 when you first marry. So what, the, I'm trying to do math. It's not going well. That's about 26 years, six wives in 26 years. That, that's a lot. That is a lot. So he would often again meet these women. He would marry these women But then again, as we see, the marriages wouldn't last very long and he'd end up getting a divorce. But he did have some tragedy in one of his marriages. In 1949, Harvey was stationed at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. And on a rainy night, he was driving his wife, Joan, and I think Joan was wife two or three. I wasn't sure. I couldn't get a really a good rundown of all of his wives. But Joan was 23 at the time, and her parents were visiting. And her mother, who was 59, was in the car with her, and they were driving back from the movies. Harvey hydroplaned on wet roads and ended up going off the bridge, rolling his car into the Tom's Bayou below. So a bayou, for those that don't know what that is, is a marshy outlet of a lake or a river that comes from the Choctaw Indian word bayok. So there is your worthless trivia knowledge I always try to sink in there. So the car sank, but not before Harvey was able to get out. But his wife and mother-in-law weren't so lucky, as both had drowned. Now Harvey claimed to others after the accident that he was able to escape from the falling vehicle mid-air before it crashed into the waters below. And he was only treated for shock and exposure. So bystanders at the scene reported that while they were trying to help Joan and her mother, Harvey really didn't do much to lift a finger. He did, however, cash in his wife's life insurance policy soon after her demise. Now there were no charges ever 
ever filed against Julian Harvey for this accident. So Coast Guard investigators, upon hearing Julian Harvey's story, right away felt, hmm, something's not really sitting right here. Mass breaking and plunging straight through a boat hull is highly unlikely. Now, they would come to find out that the Bluebell's owner recently had it inspected, and there were no structural issues. Also, the report of the sea squall occurring would not normally cause a mass, again, to plunge straight through the hull of a boat. It would most likely cause it to tilt. Now, Harvey told investigators that he had Arthur Duperall take over the steering of the Bluebell while he tried to cut down the rigging. He said that it was when the fire had broken out, it quickly spread through the cockpit area of the sailing boat. Again, not knowing much about sailing boats, I looked up, well, what's a cockpit? I think I know from planes what that is, but it is the area of the boat where all the controls are located and it is usually in an open well on the deck. Now, Harvey told investigators the direction he told Dr. Duperalt to go, which was to sail directly into the winds. Now, this would only fan the flames of the fire that had broken out, and it didn't make sense to investigators as they felt that an experienced sailor such as Arthur Duperalt would know not to do that due to his time in the Navy. The other issue with Harvey's story is that there was a lighthouse located on a nearby island that failed to see any type of sea squall that evening, and they didn't see any fires at sea at all. Also, why? Why wouldn't Harvey direct the lifeboat to the nearest island, especially after pulling a child on board the dinghy? But one of the biggest questions for investigators was why Harvey didn't use the emergency flares that were in the emergency kit on the dinghy. So as Julian Harvey is finishing up his interview with the Coast Guard investigators, one of the Coast Guard captains rushes into the room and announces that a survivor from the Bluebell has been rescued. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> if we had anybody that was sponsoring this, that's where we would put the commercial. <laughs> that would be an excellent commercial break. So after three and a half days at sea, Terry Jo Duperalt was found and rescued by the Greek freighter ship Captain Theo. Terry Jo was close to death, severely dehydrated and badly burned. She had been found on a small cork and rope raft that was barely being held together. Now rescuers were amazed that she had survived on her own for that long and hadn't been eaten by any sea predators or falling off into the water and drowning. Now you can find a picture of the very moment Terry Joe came alongside the Captain Theo as one of the crew members had a camera. And this picture would be on the December 1st, 1961 edition of Life magazine. And Terry Joe was 11 at this time, right? She was just yes. a little girl. Keep that in mind as I tell you her tale, because that is the most amazing part of this story. So Terry Joe's account of what happened goes like this. She reported that on the evening of November 13th, Mary Denae had cooked the family a dinner of chicken cacciatore and salad. Around 9 p.m., Terry Joe went below deck to the cabin she shared with her sister Renee to go to bed, and she left the rest of her family up on deck in the cockpit area. At one point later in that night, Terry Joe was awoken by her brother's screams, him yelling out, help, daddy, help. She heard running and stomping coming from the upper deck, and then silence. After five minutes, Terry Jo left her cabin only to come upon her mother and brother lying in pools of blood in the main cabin area. And this main cabin area housed the kitchen and the dining room. Terry Jo climbed up the stairs and stuck her head out of the hatch when she saw more blood on the starboard side of the boat. Starboard is the right-handed side of the vessel facing forward. She continued to climb up on the deck when Captain Harvey suddenly appeared, shoving her back down the hatch and yelling at her to get back down there. Terry Jo went back to her cabin and climbed into her bunk. Now, soon after, she heard what sounded like sloshing, like sloshing water, and then smelled a lot of oil. And what she saw was this oily water began to seep into her cabin. Harvey then appeared at her door as the water was reaching her mattress, and he had a rifle in his hand, and he didn't say anything to her, and he just turned around and suddenly climbed up the stairs. Now, soon after he left, 
Carrie Jo left her cabin because, again, the water was steadily rising. As she climbs back on the deck, she's able to see from one of the lights attached to the mast that the boat's dinghy and rubber rafts are floating on the port side of the boat. Port side would be the left-handed side of the boat facing forward. Terry Jo called out to Captain Harvey asking, is the ship sinking? She got a reply of yes, coming directly behind her. Captain Harvey suddenly handed her a line attached to one of the dinghies to hold, but she had let it slip through her hands and it went into the water. Captain Harvey immediately jumped into the water, leaving Terry Joe on board to go after the dinghy, and soon after disappeared into the night. As the ship continued to sink, Terry Joe remembered a life float that was latched to the main cabin wall. She gets to the cork and rope raft and unties it just as the boat sinks beneath her feet. At this point, Terry Joe pushes the float into the open waters of the ocean, only for one of the lines of the the float to get caught on something to the sinking vessel. Terry Joe pulls on the line trying to free herself and as she and the float are being pulled down under the water. She's able to free the line and both her and the float reemerge to the surface only to be left entirely alone. No food, no water, no protection from the elements and the only thing she's wearing is a thin white blouse and a pair of pink pants. So the next morning, after freezing through the nighttime temperatures, the temperature rises to about 85 degrees and the sun begins to scorch her skin. And if that isn't bad enough, the cork and rope float is starting to break down so much so that her legs and feet are in the water, submerged beneath the surface. On Tuesday, Terry Jo sees a small red plane circling overhead. She had taken off her blouse and she was waving it frantically in the air trying to get their attention. By this time, Terry Jo had floated into the Northwest Providence Channel, which drifts north with the Gulf Stream, then east out into the Atlantic Ocean towards the British Isles. What made it difficult for anyone to see Terry Jo was that she had blonde hair and fair skin, and the float cork that she was sitting on was white and blended into the white caps in the ocean. The red plane never saw her. On Tuesday afternoon, Terry Jo noticed shadowy figures circling her raft. This is where I have a heart attack and die. <laughs> This is why I don't go on boats. <laughs> I might cut that out, but this is where my fear of sharks come in. So Terry Joe notices shadowy figures circling the raft, and they would turn out to be a school of porpoises. Now, these porpoises, she said, would remain with her for hours, just circling around her, almost like protecting her. After the sunset on Tuesday, this brought her some relief from her burnt skin, but it also led to freezing temperatures. And again, keep in mind, this is an 11-year-old girl. It's Tuesday evening. She hasn't ate or drank anything since Sunday night. By Wednesday morning, Terry Jo was experiencing severe pain due to the extreme sun exposure. All of her muscles ached, her eyes had been dried out, her lips were swollen, and her skin is severely burnt. Now, while experiencing all of these physical ailments, she had to constantly balance herself on the float's edge as the rope webbing had given away. The next day around midday, Terry Joe barely conscious, and at one point, she opens her eyes enough to see a ship and to see people waving at her, but soon after, she slipped into unconsciousness. Terry Joe was spotted by Nicholas Bakadakis, the second officer of the Captain Theo. Now, Nicholas was on watch, and at first he thought that what he was seeing off in the distance was just another white cap in the ocean, but he kept focusing on it for some reason because he felt it was kind of an anomaly. So he told the captain about what he was seeing, and this captain set course for this anomaly. The crew would be shocked to discover the small anomaly was actually a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, 11-year-old girl. 
Terry Jo was rescued by the Captain Theo and was helicoptered to a Miami hospital where she would spend 11 days. But she had experienced no permanent injuries, which is amazing, I think, through this whole story. So Terry Jo was questioned by Coast Guard investigators a week after arriving at the Miami hospital, where she gave her account of what happened to her and her family. And this would become the official account and the one she wouldn't repeat for nearly 50 years. The day after Julian Harvey was told of a survivor being rescued from the Bluebell, he had checked into the Sandman Hotel in Miami under an assumed name. When housekeeping entered the room the next day, they noticed blood on the bed sheets and they couldn't get the bathroom door open. So hotel staff notified police and police would soon discover the body of Julian Harvey dead from an apparent suicide. Harvey had used a double-edged razor blade to slit his thigh, his ankles, and his throat. He would leave behind a note for his closest friend, James Boozer, with instructions to care for his son, Lance, who was 13 at the time. And he also had a request to be buried at sea. Now, James Boozer would come to tell investigators the story Julian Harvey had told him shortly after his rescue and prior to Cherry Joe's rescue, claiming that he had panicked and jumped overboard, leaving his wife and the entire Duperalt family to go down with the bluebell during the violent storm. And he at some point pulled the body of whom he thought was Terry Joe into the lifeboat, but it was actually Renee, but she of course had already drowned. Now, of course, his version was not the version he even told the Coast Guard investigators, nor was it Terry Joe's version. But Julian Harvey would be buried at sea at 3.17 p.m. on November 20th, 1961. So investigators tried to look for a motive. You know, what led him to do this, to, to massacre his wife and this almost entire family? And what they came to find was that there was a large life insurance policy out on Mary Denae for $20,000 with a double indemnity clause, which would then double that to 40000 and in 1961, that's a lot of money. Other mysteries besides the death of his wife and his mother-in-law. So as they were looking into his background, they found, oh, he had two large life insurance settlements for a sunken yacht he had owned at one time and a sunken powerboat. So I think we're getting a picture here that he made his, a lot of his money off of life insurance. So one theory as to what occurred on the Bluebell that evening that led to this massacre is that Harvey had possibly been in the act of killing his wife, again, for the insurance money, perhaps making it look like she drowned. Investigators felt that possibly Arthur Duperall came upon the scene and perhaps tried to stop him, and Harvey ended up killing Arthur Duperall, then killing his wife and his son, leaving the two younger girls to drown never thinking Terry Joe would survive. So Terry Joe would end up going back to Green Bay, Wisconsin and living with family members. She did change her first name at the age of 12 to Tara, T-E-R-A. And in 1988, September specifically, she would be reunited with the captain of the Captain Theo on the Oprah Winfrey show. Now she would go on to co-author a book called Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean, with psychologist and lone survival expert Richard Logan, and this book came out in May of 2010. Terry Duperalt Fassbender gave an interview to 48 Hours Mystery in June 2010, and she says it took her almost 50 years till she felt ready to tell her story, and the purpose of sharing her story was to help other survivors. Now, what's amazing about Terry's life after her rescue is she still wanted to live and work closely with water. I don't think I could do that. I just heard this story and I don't want to be near water. I could not right. imagine her going through this. 
She became a water management specialist for the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources and went on to marry Ron Fassbender and have three children. She talks about her abandonment of Julian Harvey and thinking about the ocean swallowing her up. But what happened through this experience is it actually created a closer bond for her that she developed between her and the ocean. Now, this is a quote from her. I went on to protect water that had protected me as a little girl. Water is life and it is soothing for me to be on the beach. I find I can think clearly, I can relax, and feel closer to my lost family. Now, a positive outcome of this tale, besides Tara's rescue, was that the Coast Guard changed boating regulations. That is why we now have bright international orange on all life rafts. And this was recommended in 1962, the year after Tara's rescue. So usually at this point, Maddie, we do talk about like, oh, what would be your criminal discourse life tip? But I think this week, with it being the week of Thanksgiving, is to end with the afterword of a loaned orphaned on the ocean. And these are Tara's words. What I want to stress to all who read this book is to never give up. Always have hope and try to look on the bright side of things. Be positive, be trusting, and try to go with the flow. Have compassion, give of yourself to those in need, and be loving and kind. I believe what you give comes back to you. I think enough said. What do you think? No, I think that sums it up. Her words are much better than any that I could give. So it is the wink of Thanksgiving, and we hope you've all enjoyed this episode. Hope you have a wonderful time with your family. And remember, again, kind of Tara's words of be loving, be kind, and believe that what you give comes back to you. So we're going to end on that note. Until next time, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.